Welcome to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another free CC Partners live webinar. Thank you very much for joining us. This morning, we are presenting Labor and Employment Perspectives, Conducting Business in the Construction Industry During and After COVID-19. And if you were not watching us live, then you were watching or listening to episode 15 of the Lawyers for Employers broadcast brought to you by CC Partners. My name is Mike McClellan, and today I'm joined by two of my colleagues, Jay Ryder, and Christina Tomaino. For those who we are meeting today for the first time, CC Partners is a boutique labor and employment law firm exclusively advising employers, hence our slogan, Lawyers for Employers. When we're not working remotely, our flagship office is located in downtown Brampton, Ontario. We also have offices in Barrie and Sudbury, and we are located online at www.ccpartners.ca. This is the fifth, fifth webinar we have presented on employment law issues relating to COVID-19, but this is the first one focusing on the construction industry. We're really excited and, and proud to be able to present this and we thank you for joining us. If you have questions, please feel free to use the Q&A button on the bottom of your screen. We will address as many as we can during the Q&A portion of our presentation. But having said that, let's jump into our webinar. Yeah, thanks, thanks Mike. Um, it's maybe our fifth webinar, but it's my first ever webinar. So uh, I'm a bit of a dinosaur if people will just uh, bear with me as I muddle my way through it. But uh, wanted to start the program this morning by just highlighting for everyone uh, how severely construction in Ontario has been impacted by uh, COVID-19 and the declaration of emergency in the province attached to it. Uh, compiled just some interesting facts and figures for people uh, from recent information released by the Ontario Construction Secretariat in the last couple of weeks. Uh, first of all, over 93,000 construction jobs were lost in Ontario in April 2020. Uh, this was a 17.5% decrease in construction employment from February of 2020 uh, to April's numbers. Uh, within that survey, 98% of contractors reported being negatively impacted to some extent by COVID-19 and 74% reported having laid off construction workers. 52% uh, reported that all or most of their work had been stopped, while on average 64% of existing work had stopped, this is in April, and 65% of upcoming work was expected to be delayed. 16 uh, percent of firms actually reported that they expected to be out of business within three months if things didn't change. And 56% reported that to stay in business, they would likely need some form of government assistance. So as we sit here today, uh, you can see the picture uh, looks rather bleak, uh, but hopefully uh, we're soon to be coming out the other side uh, with loosening of restrictions on uh, projects and activities in the construction industry in Ontario. And with that, I'd like to do a little review of where we're at uh, in terms of what construction work is considered essential and allowed to proceed and what construction work uh, is still restricted at the moment. So 
just a quick background overview. It was on March 17th that the government of Ontario declared a provincial uh, state of emergency. And under that original emergency order, most construction projects, including all ICI and residential projects, uh, were deemed essential and allowed to continue. Uh, the landscape changed significantly on April 3rd of 2020. There was a new list of essential construction that was released, and this list was much more restrictive than the original list. Uh, in a nutshell, only the following uh, remained essential after the April 3rd announcement. Uh, number one, maintenance and repair, but only to the extent strictly necessary to protect safety, security, and sanitation in plants and buildings. Uh, construction projects that were involved in building additional healthcare capacity, critical infrastructure construction, which would include uh, transportation, energy, and justice. So major infrastructure projects on roads, uh, subways, anything related to transportation were allowed to continue. Uh, as well, some critical industrial was allowed, including building and supporting homegrown PPE production. But beyond that, uh, ICI was essentially shut down and there was provision for ongoing residential work to continue to some degree, uh, but not fully. So spinning forward in the last week and two weeks, I guess we can change. There were further revisions announced May 1 and May 6, allowing for opening up of additional uh, construction activities. Uh, these included municipal work, work on schools, colleges, and universities, site preparation, excavation, and servicing for ICI and residential development, and below grade multi unit residential construction projects. And I think. Uh, the site preparation, excavation, and servicing for ICI and residential is important to note because that is likely to be the precursor uh, to a full reopening of the ICI and residential sectors uh, based on some information I've received that I think is on pretty good authority. Uh, we can expect an announcement fairly soon uh, reopening the ICI sector and uh, most of residential is already reopened, but I think it's, uh, it's on its way too. Just also included in the materials, uh, a brief note on fines. I won't review the, the fines, but they're significant and severe. Uh, there are Ministry of Labor inspectors uh, out actively on sites, policing the, the nature of the construction activities that are going on. And if you're found to be offside uh, and engaging in non-essential work, uh, the anticipation is hopefully it's just a misunderstanding can be cleared up with the ministry, but there is the potential for serious uh, fines for employers, uh, companies, contractors that are uh, viewed to be uh, being deliberately offside the rules. Uh, switching now into the reopening phase, which we hope is starting to occur, you're going to face a number of issues around recalling your essential workers to work. So I wanted to start by talking about uh, recalls to employment and specifically notice of recall. Uh, in a non-union workplace, there are no specific requirements in terms of any form of recall notice, 
doesn't necessarily have to be in writing. Um, it, it, there's nothing that is specified by the Employment Standards Act. That being said, uh, I would highly recommend that notice of recall uh, be sent to your employees in writing, uh, if possible, by way of email, text, or what have you, so that there's some record. And also that the notice of recall be specific about the date, time, and site that the employees are respected to, are expected to report to. Uh, what happens when an employee either refuses or fails to return to work uh, following a recall to employment? Well, subject to some exceptions that I'm gonna talk about in a minute, normally speaking, if an employee fails to return within a reasonable time of being recalled to employment, uh, they are deemed to have abandoned their employment and they are not entitled uh, to any uh, severance or other uh, payments from their employer. Um, switching from the non-union though into the union environment, uh, you need to be aware of additional considerations. If you're in a traditional building trades situation, most of the collective agreements have uh, hiring hall rules where once employees are laid off, even temporarily, uh, they go back into the hall and could be assigned to work with another employer. So you want to be working with your unions proactively to um, ensure that workers who have been temporarily laid off uh, can be recalled to your service, irrespective of any uh, name hiring restrictions in the collective agreements. And my understanding speaking to some contractors is the unions have been quite amenable to that uh, in this particular situation. They have been partnering well uh, with the companies to ensure that uh, good workers uh, who have been laid off, unfortunately, by this situation are able to be uh, recalled by their normal employer to employment. Uh, I also believe we may have some uh, CLAC contractors on the call. Their collective agreements are slightly different. Uh, you may well have seniority rules in your collective agreements regarding how you recall and in what order you recall employees to uh, your employee after a temporary layoff. You'll have to have regard to those seniority provisions. And uh, in all collective agreements, you should be cognizant of whether there are any uh, notice requirements, specific notice requirements in terms of the length of time an employee has to answer a recall notice. There's going to be, uh, I think, some significant challenges for employers in managing these return to work uh, requests, and you're going to face recall refusals, uh, some of which are legitimate and in fact even protected at law. And I wanted to review a few of those instances where uh, if the employee ha has a documented reason for refusal uh, that they uh, could legitimately refuse a recall for employment and not jeopardize their employment with the company. So number one is employees 70 years of age or older. Uh, the Chief Medical Officer of Ontario has issued a directive that all people over 70 should self-isolate given the elevated risk of a severe outcome from COVID-19 and therefore uh, any refusal to work at this point on anyone 70 or above uh, would be uh, considered a protected refusal. As well, if other individuals uh, in your workplace uh, who either uh, 
have immuno conditions, uh, high risk uh, to themselves or to others in their household. So some examples uh, might be an employee who has diabetes or hypertension or has a family member uh, living with them who uh, is also at elevated risk uh, and requires accommodation. Additionally, big one for most people with the, the schools and the daycares closed are those employees with uh, childcare obligations or obligations to other dependents in the household uh, that they need uh, accommodation for as a result of COVID-19. Jay, I'm just going to jump in quickly there and uh, just wanted to add and, and remind everybody on our uh, presentation today. The Employment Standards Act was recently amended in terms of the uh, leaves of absence provisions. Uh, that includes amendments to the uh, declared emergency leave provisions to specifically now introduce and include an infectious disease emergency leave. And that is applicable, Jay, exactly in the kind of situation that you're talking about. Either somebody has or is being investigated or isolated or quarantined for COVID-19, or they are caring for dependents, including children whose schools and daycares are closed. The Employment Standards Act specifically provides a job-protected leave for those individuals. It's an unpaid leave, but it's a job-protected leave. So in effect, somebody's layoff could be uh, converted to a leave of absence under the Employment Standards Act. So I just wanted to um, make sure we're all clear on that as well. And, and that's exactly right, Mike, except to note that not all of the examples we've highlighted necessarily attract the specific protection of the declared emergencies and infectious disease leave under the Employment Standards Act, but may still, may well still uh, attract the duty to accommodate under the Human Rights Code and become protected leaves as a result. And as you correctly note, what happens is on a recall from a temporary layoff, for one of these employees who has a legitimate grounds for refusal is that they uh, switch their status from layoff to leave of absence as a matter of their technical categorization. One of the more difficult challenges that I think employers are gonna face is beyond these situations where people have uh, job protected leaves, you're gonna get employees who just say, look at, I'm not comfortable coming back to work or I got a spouse who doesn't want me to come back to work while this thing is going on. And I'd rather be home in receipt of the government benefits. Um, as a strict matter of law, if they're working in an essential capacity you, and they don't have a legitimate protected ground to refuse to come to work, you're entitled to inspect, expect them to come to work. Uh, assuming you're taking meeting your Occupational Health and Safety Act obligations that Christina is gonna talk about to take all reasonable precautions to protect the health and safety of your workers in the workplace, uh, you're entitled to expect them to attend. But balanced against that has to be, if you're gonna compel someone to come back to work who really doesn't wanna be there, who's scared to be there, who's getting crap at home for being there, are they gonna be productive? Are they gonna be disruptive on your sites? So it really has to be a judgment call for employers whether they're gonna force the hand of people who are in those uh, situations. and. Uh, certainly would recommend you reaching out to your counsel uh, before you make any uh, decisions in dealing with those type of refusals. Just a final note uh, that I wanted to make 
on some things I've seen around retaining key employees during the period of temporary layoff as we move into a period of reopening uh, where you want to uh, keep key people on board and have them back to work uh, in a timely manner. So assuming your business has been impacted to a significant degree by COVID-19, and Michael talk about the applicable requirements, you may be able to claim the Canada Emergency Wage Support Benefit from the federal government, which will give you a top up of 75% on base wage uh, for your key employees. And you may be able to keep them on payroll, uh, even if they're not working, actively working, so that, uh, you know, call it a standby type arrangement so that they're they're there and they're ready to work uh, when you need them, when things reopen. So uh, what I've seen in the union context anyways, are some specific standby agreements between employers and their trade unions. Uh, just to give one very basic example, uh, you take certain key employees, uh, you pay them 30 hours a week base wage while they're not working. That equates roughly to the 75% that you're receiving from the government. Uh, the agreement with the union is they can't work or be referred to work elsewhere while they remain on standby. They must be ready, willing, and able to return to work on a specified amount of notice. And then in order to ensure um, the costs are contained, uh, there would be no health and welfare or pension or other collective agreement burdens payable on the standby pay. So it's just the straight 30 hours a week, nothing else to stay home on standby. That's essentially covered by the government and you've got your key people ready, willing and uh, able to return when uh, things improve and you need them back at site. And uh, that's it for me until we get to the Q&A portion. Thanks, Jay. That was very informative, very important. Uh, we appreciate that. Uh, shortly, I am going to discuss some of the government benefits that are available for businesses and uh, workers, because that is another hot topic. But before we do that, we're going to kick it over to Christina to talk about health and safety and best practices upon reopening. So, uh, Christina, back to you. Thanks, Mike. Uh, so first, apologies for my sound quality. There may be some... Uh, some rustling in the background. I do apologize for that. And so as Mike mentioned, I'll be speaking first to best practices for safely reopening job sites, and then moving on to some additional health and safety considerations, including what you might expect in terms of inspection and enforcement from the Ministry of Labor. Now, as construction sites look to reopen, employers need to be turning their minds to how to bring employees back safely and in accordance with public health guidelines. So as I'm sure um, many of our listeners today are aware, the province of Ontario has introduced a number of sector-specific guidelines, and those are aimed at protecting workers as the economy reopens and workplaces uh, begin to resume. So it's important as a very fundamental uh, first step to keep up to date with these government recommendations particularly those that may be specific to the construction industry and adjust your policies, practices, and procedures on the job site accordingly. Um, it goes without saying that it's been a continuously evolving situation. And, and as Jay 
outlined earlier in this presentation, uh, things really do change very quickly and the public health guidance may change as well. Now, one thing that we consistently emphasize to employers is the need for strong health and safety policies. In the context of COVID-19, this is more important than ever, and particularly that employers have site-specific health and safety policies in place. So for example, uh, if you have one job site that's outdoors, lots of open spaces, physical distancing is not a concern, uh, that may require specific policies, whereas if you're working indoors or in an area that might require workers to navigate confined spaces, that would require a different approach. So this is really not the time for a one-size-fits-all approach to health and safety. But once you have your policies in place, uh, really the next most important priority should be ensuring that all of your employees receive training on physical distancing, proper hygiene, workplace sanitation procedures, and all of these site-specific protocols that you've put in place. I've listed a number of protocols on the screen here that may be valuable for employers to consider uh, as preconditions for accessing the job site. So this includes uh, self-reporting obligations, perhaps a screening questionnaire, or non-contact temperature screening. And now as a, as a further point to accessing the site, uh, this may go without saying, uh, but access to the job site should be restricted to essential personnel. So if someone doesn't need to be on the site that day, they shouldn't be on site. Now for employees who are essential or those who do need to be there, uh, measures such as non-contact temperature screening or the screening questionnaire, as I mentioned, can assist employers in ensuring that individuals who may present an infection risk are not entering the work site. Uh, so for example, what a lot of employers are implementing is a questionnaire asking employees if experienced any flu-like symptoms or if they've been in proximity with anyone who has been diagnosed with COVID-19. Now employers should clearly communicate the importance of truthful, truthful self-reporting to employees and visitors who are entering the job site. Now, one last point in term access, it really is important for employers to be aware of everyone who's on the job site at any given time. Uh, Sign-in sheets are common and should be enforced. Uh, and the importance of this is that in the event that you do have a positive COVID test on site, you as the employer can then effectively engage in the contact tracing process and make sure that anyone who may have been exposed is appropriately notified. So moving on to PPE, uh, which has been a, a hot topic lately. Now in the construction industry, uh, there's certainly a, a standard and an expectation that PPE will be used, but that's typically a hard hat, safety boots, for example. Uh, however, in the context of COVID-19, employers need to be considering whether additional infection prevention PPE may be necessary. For example, if your job site does require employees to be in close proximity to each other, uh, perhaps those employees who must breach the two meter physical distancing guidelines need to be equipped with a face mask or face shield 
to ensure their safety when they're getting in close quarters. Moving on to the, the physical work site, um, really a key element is ensuring that hand washing facilities are readily accessible to all employees. Hand hygiene is really going to be a focus of ministry inspections. There should also be guidelines in place for employees on maintaining proper hygiene. And these guidelines, along with all other policies and procedures, should be posted prominently in the workplace so that employees have a clear understanding of what is required by the employer. Uh, now, some other tips. Limit in-person meetings to the extent possible. Uh, stagger lunch breaks, stagger start times and end times, all of this to promote physical distancing. So for example, if you're having a toolbox talk, uh, if you don't have the space to spread it out, perhaps everyone just calls in. Um, perhaps it's broken up into smaller groups where physical distancing is possible instead of having the whole group come together. And then another really key element in terms of protecting yourself from possible um, ministry inspections or enforcement uh, or in interactions with the union is making sure that you have proper communication and documentation. So you want to be documenting all the measures you've taken to protect employee health and safety. You want to make sure that you have that readily accessible in the event that you have a ministry inspector or a union rep call you and say, hey, um, my guys don't feel safe or we've had a report. Uh, what have you done to ensure that everyone is working safely? And you'll be able to quickly respond, outline the safety measures that you've taken and really ensure uh, that anyone who's concerned has some peace of mind and maybe head off some problems down the road. Christina, I think that's a really good point. And one thing I would want to emphasize to any employer is that uh, infractions under the Occupational Health and Safety Act are prosecuted on a uh, reasonableness standard, which essentially means your built-in defense under the Occupational Health and Safety Act is something called due diligence. If you can establish that you've taken all reasonable steps in the circumstances to prevent a workplace hazard, that should be a good compelling defense. And it's going to be your, um, your, your, your best friend is going to be the documents that you've uh, amassed and, and recorded along the way. So uh, I absolutely definitely echo um, for, for purposes of uh, being prepared to defend yourself under the Occupational Health and Safety Act. Keep, keep uh, good timely records of, of all of your health and safety efforts. Thanks, Mike. And I think um, just further to that, it's, it's all well and good to have the policies, but you also need to make sure that they're, they're posted prominently, they come to the attention of employees, and employees do receive training on them. Uh, certainly, um, if anyone has been through um, an occupational health and safety charge, uh, or, or practitioners like me, oftentimes we see an employer has these great health and safety policies, but the employees have never seen them and then they're no good as a defense. So really just making sure that you have the protocols and policies in place and employees have access them. And that takes us to health and safety inspections and enforcement. 
So as construction employers, you can absolutely expect that there will be more scrutiny on job sites as projects begin to reopen. Uh, perhaps um, so probably the focus of inspectors will be on the infection prevention measures. Uh, that is that physical distancing, hygiene, sanitation, our, our high touch point areas being disinfected. All of those um, fundamental elements that hopefully you've addressed in your policies and procedures will be inspected. Now, typically inspectors, when they come in, uh, they're looking at the Occupational Health and Safety Act and enforcing that. In the current circumstances, I think it's important for employers to be aware that inspectors may be making inquiries under the EMPCA um, to ensure that employers and workplaces are in compliance. So as Jay mentioned, there are some, some fines associated with acting improperly if you're not in that scope of essential services. So you can expect that there may be questions on those issues from Ministry of Labor employers that may be expanded from what they would typically be asking. That's just one additional consideration to be mindful of as you interact with Ministry of Labor sectors. And I would just, as always, uh, urge caution in any interactions. And if someone is trying to advocate that, you know, perhaps a voluntary shutdown would be appropriate if they think you're offside the MPCA, uh, maybe step back, assess, speak to counsel, uh, and then respond. And as always, really be mindful of the possibility of charges under the Occupational Health and Safety Act, uh, the possibility of a project shutdown or fines under the EMPCA. Um, to my knowledge, there haven't yet been any charges laid as a result of COVID-19, but there is uh, that one-year window to do so. So that, that certainly doesn't mean uh, that charges will not be laid. And then finally, moving on to work refusals. As Jay mentioned, their employers can expect there to be a number of employees uh, who are reluctant to be recalled to work, but also for work refusals for employees who have returned to work. So there has been a dramatic and marked increase in work refusals due to COVID-19. Now, what we're seeing is that if a worker has a general concern, a general fear, uh, for example, they, you know, there are good policies in place, physical distancing is being respected, but they just don't feel safe being at work, uh, they'd rather be at home. That is unlikely to be upheld by the Ministry of Labor if they're brought in for a second stage investigation. That said, it really is important to be setting the stage for that inspection and making sure you're responding appropriately to the work refusal. So if an employee comes to you and says, listen, I, I don't feel safe, um, I, I would rather not be on the job site, and you know as the employer that all appropriate safety measures are being taken, uh, my, my strong advice is to ensure that the complaint is nonetheless properly investigated, documented, involve your Joint Health and Safety Committee as necessary or your worker rep, and make sure that you have clear communication as to the various prevention policies and procedures you have in place, the PPE available, the training you've done, the toolbox tops, really point to all of those resources, both for the worker who's making the refusal 
and for the, the joint health and safety rep, the worker rep, any union reps who may be involved so that all parties have a clear understanding of the measures that come in. And what that does is it really sets a solid foundation in the event that you do need to escalate to bring in the ministry. Uh, you can say, listen, there was this work refusal. These are the steps we've taken to ensure safety. These are the steps we've taken to investigate. And if you can get people on your side to say, yes, um, the employer has had these policies in place, they've been communicated, the investigation was done properly, that really just uh, increases the chances that the ministry will not uphold that work refusal. And I think really that the takeaway here is to just make sure that all the bases are covered in terms of establishing those policies, communicating them to your employees and documenting them. Um, and that's it for me. Thank you, Christina. Uh, we definitely appreciate uh, that insight into health and safety in uh, the soon to be reopened construction industry. I want to remember or remind everybody this presentation will be posted online for your review. Uh, you can visit our website at www.ccpartners.ca and click under the broadcasts tab. You will see this presentation available as both a video and a podcast. We're going to make sure that these slides are available for everybody. And if you have individual specific questions that require legal advice, as you can tell, we're still all working remotely. So give any one of us a call and we will do our best to point you in the right direction. Uh, I also want to take a second to recognize our friends from various construction associations for helping spread the word. Uh, we have a number of people uh, attending today, which is a really, really good, really strong turnout. We have some good questions coming in in the Q&A tab. Some people are using the webinar chat tab. Uh, if you can insert your questions into the Q&A tab, that is how we're going to be running the Q&A portion uh, shortly. Uh, let, let's shift a, a little bit now. I'm going to talk about uh, the government benefits and um, the, the two main ones that we're getting the most questions about are the uh, Canada uh, employee, Canada Emergency Relief Benefit and the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy. So let's transition over to that now. Okay, let me figure out how I'm going to move over to the slide here. Okay, perfect. So let's talk first about the CERB. Uh, and I'm just going to give some brief overviews. These are um, government benefits available to workers and employers. The CERB essentially provides eligible workers with $2,000 in benefits every four weeks for 16 weeks, so long as the worker remains eligible. Eligibility has a number of criteria. The worker must be at least 15 years old. They have to be a resident of Canada. They must have earned $5,000 in the previous 12 months or in the 2019 year, and they must have lost work or be unable to work due to COVID-19. So that includes layoffs, business closures, but it also includes their taking care of somebody with COVID-19. Jay was talking earlier about recalling people from layoff. Those people would 
potentially be eligible for uh, the CERB benefit if they are returned to work, but they can't because they're entitled to another leave of absence, uh, they still may be available to, or still may be eligible to apply for the CERB. There is new eligibility criteria though, thankfully. Initially, the CERB was only available to people whose earnings had decreased to zero. Uh, now people are able to still earn $1,000 in the eligibility period from employment or self-employment income and still be eligible for CERB. But if a person becomes ineligible, including that they earn more than $1,000 during the eligibility period, they actually have to repay the entire CERB amount. So we're getting a lot of questions from employers who are getting a lot of questions from their employees. Things like, will reinstatement affect their benefits? Or my employees want to know what will happen if we bring them back to work and pay them. I'm always somewhat hesitant to uh, try to give advice directly to the employee. Uh, my feeling is that as an employer, it's not your responsibility or, or place to be your employee's tax advisor. You're probably not, uh, you, pr you may not have the information to do so. Uh, and I would just also recommend that workers receiving the CERB can call into CRA for information about their eligibility. Uh, CRA has definitely ramped up their capacity to answer questions. So uh, there's nothing wrong with directing an employee to consult the CRA directly for any answers to their questions. But there are some things we do know about the CERB. We do know that if an employer makes over $1,000 in the applicable period, they have to pay back the entire CERB. So it's not like they only have to pay back a portion of overpayment, they have to pay back the entire thing. If you have limited work for an employee and they make $1,000 but not a penny more, they can take home $3,000 in that period, 2,000 from CERB plus the $1,000 you pay them. But it is obviously possible that you pay more than $1,000 and the employees end up making less money than they would if they were still eligible for the CERB. On that basis, you may have employees who don't want to come back to work. Consider whether you can schedule more workers for fewer hours. Check your collective agreement to see if uh, it restricts your ability to schedule work uh, in a way most beneficial to your workers and to your business. There's also the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy. The absolute best thing I can tell you about the wage subsidy is to get advice from your accountant or your tax advisor. The Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy is legislated by amending the Income Tax Act. And in essence, it allows employers to claim an immediate tax overpayment to be refunded. So that's why make sure you're getting proper tax advice when you're looking into the wage subsidy. You apply for it via your My CRA account for business. The application itself is pretty straightforward. It's just a matter of entering data into the appropriate fields on, on the web pages but you have to have considerable accounting done first. Um, I, I do wanna point out that uh, in episodes 13 and 14 of our Lawyers for Employers webcasts, we had accountants and tax specialists talking about CERB and CEWS. So feel free to go onto our website and review episodes 13 and 14 to hear some information straight from the experts on uh, these, these government benefits and tax measures. But there are some clear elements Mike, of the C. Sorry, go ahead, Jay. Sorry, I'm just going to 
just clarify a couple of points for people too that uh, have come up. The government announced recently that the wage subsidy program uh, will be extended to as yet an unspecified date beyond uh, June 6, 2020. So that's going to continue to be available for some time to come. Uh, as well, uh, we learned in the last couple of days that the position of the federal government is that uh, for employers who have supplementary unemployment benefit plans registered to top up people on EI, uh, to the extent that they paid more than $1,000 in a uh, four-week period, uh, would disentitle uh, employees from their CERB benefits. So uh, be careful if you have a sub plan in place and employees who are on CERB that you're not topping up more than $1,000 a month because the federal government is going to uh, deem that to be uh, income for purposes of disentitling employees to their CERB. Thanks, Jay. Good points, important points. Um, you can also keep up with any developments that we post in our blogs. Uh, the Employer's Edge blog, which is also available at www.ccpartners.ca. So there are some things we do know about the wage subsidy. Most employers may be eligible, including charities, nonprofits, and of course, construction companies. But public bodies such as municipalities, hospitals, and school boards are not eligible. The program is retroactive to March 15, 2020. Uh, at the time I drafted my notes, it was comprised of three, four week periods, but it has been uh, extended to an as yet unconfirmed date. In order for an employer to be eligible for the wage subsidy, you have to show a monthly reduction in revenue compared to the same month in 2019 or an average of January and February 2020. You have to show a 15% decrease in revenue for March and a 30% decrease thereafter. Businesses will be able to select between cash and accrual accounting methods to determine their, uh, or to calculate their reductions in revenue. But once you make that selection, you have to stick with it for the duration of the uh, wage subsidy program. So again, please get proper tax and accounting advice when you're preparing to apply for the wage subsidy. There are also certain employees to whom the wage subsidy cannot be implied cannot be applied. That includes non-arm's length employees. The CEWS wage subsidy really is meant to take the burden off of the CERB and not be in addition to it. That was the intention that the government stated when they came out with this program. So, uh, you know, employees uh, in theory are not able to double dip both the CERB and the CEWS, except to the extent that Jay said there is a uh, $1,000 a cap that may be applicable. And it is possible to retroactively pay your employees and then apply for the wage subsidy. And in fact, in certain circumstances, an employee who has not performed work during a period in which they are paid, the CEWS will rebate CPP and EI remittances for that employee as well. So what the wage subsidy means for construction employers, uh, like I said, it really works as a refund. So typically you will have to pay the employees first and then wait for the government to process your application and pay a refund. You may be able to do some planning around that, including for retroactive payments. And it is not exactly clear yet when payments will be made. Expect it to be a number of weeks, possibly a couple of months. 
and not every dollar paid in favor of an employee can be subsidized. The subsidy will only apply to eligible remuneration, according to the legislation. It includes wages and salary and generally amounts to it on which the employer has to make payroll deductions and pay to the CRA. So look at your wage grid in your collective agreement. Um, again, you may be able to be a little bit flexible and creative with your uh, scheduling, but uh, things like union remittances for health and welfare and pension, where you are not making payments to the CRA, are not likely to be eligible for the wage subsidy. Uh, again, I can't stress this enough. Consult with your tax advisor. Make sure you're maximizing your wage subsidy entitlements. And the last thing we're going to talk about during our presentation is the, the state of adjudication in uh, labor and employment. As you likely already know, most courts and tribunals are currently closed for in-person hearings unless the particular adjudicator decides otherwise on a case-by-case -case basis. What some courts are doing, uh, and certainly arbitrators and mediator, is offering or even requiring matters to proceed via teleconference and video conference. There are some security concerns that come along with this, but nonetheless, uh, in some cases, we are being ordered to proceed in this matter. And it may make sense in a given case, particularly for mediation or for purely procedural purposes or, or maybe just making legal arguments. Uh, but yeah, in some cases, we are going to be presenting oral evidence with witnesses in this matter, in this manner. Um, you know, I would say the Human Rights Tribunal has been conducting pre-hearing mediations via conference call for quite some time. That can be pretty effective. So again, for, for purposes of pre-hearing uh, processes, this may not be a huge, uh, a huge adjustment for us, but it certainly will if we have to uh, proceed with hearings on the merits in this way. Uh, let me talk about the courts. The Ontario Court of Justice, which is where any provincial offenses would be heard and, and hopefully we've got enough information from Christina's presentation so that we're all going to be safe and, and strictly on side the Health and Safety Act. But uh, the Provincial Offenses Court is not conducting any trials or preliminary inquiries until July 6, 2020 at the earliest, but it is in the process of setting up electronic filing for court material, remote scheduling and remote hearings, but this is not in place yet. The Ontario Superior Court of Justice, where large civil litigation matters will take place, things like contract disputes, they will not resume in-person hearings until July 6th, 2020 at the earliest. Certain matters are going to be held, heard virtually. This will vary by region by region across Ontario. The Small Claims Court for monetary claims up to and including $35,000. There are no hearings until further notice. Counter services at the courts are closed. Filings are only being done online at this time. And the big one for us is the Ontario Labor Relations Board. All in-person hearings are canceled to at least June 30th, 2020. However, all filings are being accepted via email. That includes all applications, responses, and interventions. And if you go onto the Ontario Labor Relations Board website and look at their recent decisions of interest, you will see there are certification applications in the construction industry, unfair labor practice complaints in the construction industry, 
uh, grievances in the construction industry currently all being brought to the labor board and the labor board is still receiving and processing these applications and putting out decisions on how to move forward with them. Although the government of Ontario has passed legislation essentially putting a pause on limitation periods, the Ontario Labor Relations Board has used its discretion to leave all of its timelines intact. That means employers still have only two days to file a response to an application for certification. And like I said, those are still coming in. Where there needs to be a certification vote, all votes are being conducted electronically. When a vote is ordered, the employer will be required to provide the Labor Relations Board with telephone and email contact information for each individual on the voter list. Certain proceedings are being done via telecon or by video conference. That includes case management hearings. Uh, there is currently a motion to decide the status of one individual in dispute in a CERT app that is going forward in a video conference. A video conference is going to be held for final argument after all evidence has been presented at the Labor Board. There is one case where the OL OLRB has ordered parties to prepare and submit will-say statements. And if there was a disagreement on whether to, to proceed by video conference after six weeks, the parties will have an opportunity to argue that point. There are a couple of cases where the board is ordering parties to argue construction industry certification applications via video conference. In one such case, the application was filed quite a long ago. There's been a number of delays along the way and the labor board really wants the matter to proceed. So they're gonna proceed by video conference. Um, and there's another case that has been reported that the parties actually agreed to proceed. Uh, including on evidence on the merits on via uh, a Zoom conference, kind of like what we're doing now. It's not quite business as usual with the courts uh, or the labor board. And the longer the pandemic lasts, the more likely matters are going to be heard by video conference. Um, the one big takeaway I would um, have for, uh, for everybody in terms of how our legal processes are, are being administered uh, Again, for me, the big one is that at the Labor Relations Board, all the time limits are still in place. So be sure you're checking your mail and your faxes and your emails and, and uh, be aware of any applications that come in because you still have tight deadlines to make your, make your responses. Um, so maybe we'll just, before we get into the question and answer period, just uh, leave with some final thoughts for our attendees. Uh, I think what I would say is just in this uncharted and unprecedented territory, every employer really needs to get individual advice, not just legal advice with respect to reopening for a business and adjudicating claims, also proper tax and financial advice to avail yourselves of the government programs. Um, Jay, what would you say are some final thoughts for our attendees? Final thoughts for attendees. Uh, I would say, uh, number one, it's been clearly a rough road uh, for the entire province, but particularly for construction employers. But there is light coming, we think. Uh, construction projects have been demonstrated to be safe. Uh, in fact, construction employers and construction projects are no stranger to significant risk 
contamination infection, dealing with hazardous materials and other contaminants. So construction in, is in fact well suited, I think, uh, to provide the type of health and safety uh, guarantees in the workplace uh, that should allow uh, the industry to reopen and hopefully the government is going to uh, lift the majority of the remaining restrictions soon and uh, people will implement their policies and protocols to the extent they haven't already to meet with the public health and occupational health and safety guidelines and uh, uh, knock on wood uh, hopefully uh, there'll be a return to a somewhat normal activity in the near future. All good points. Thank you, Jay. And Christina, uh, what are some final thoughts that you would leave our participants with today? Well, first, I, I would certainly echo both your and Jay's points. Uh, and I think just on, on the continued topic of health and safety, and I may be over hammering this point, uh, but really just for employers to make sure that they have all their uh, their I's dotted and their T's crossed when it comes to their policies, procedures, and measures. Um, some uncertainty and discomfort from employees in returning to work will be accepted. I think it's only natural. And responding to those concerns as they arise, demonstrating that you're in good shape as an employer to keep your employees safe, will really do a lot in preventing any issues down the line, whether that's a ministry complaint, charging the Occupational Health and Safety Act uh, or a grievance. And I'd add to that, Christina, it also assists people in managing uh, refusals because then you can ensure your workers that you're doing everything that uh, has been recommended and then some. Uh, hopefully you can alleviate some of those uh, innate concerns of the, the workers and their families about being uh, back to work and on sites and and get people back to work as you as you need them. Thanks, Jay and Christine. I appreciate that. Put up some of our contact information for anybody who does have further questions. Uh, you can, as we've said, find us online. Uh, we do have an entire section of COVID-19 related blogs that you can find at www.ccpartners.ca uh, along with our broadcasts. Thanks to everybody who helped share the details of this uh, webinar. Uh, if you would like to join our mailing list, you can do so on our website or by sending an email to the address uh, attached. You can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. You can follow our YouTube channel and our podcasts on SoundCloud, SoundCloud iTunes, Google Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcasts. Um, thank you very much. We appreciate it on behalf of Jay, Christina, and myself. Uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and we will be back momentarily with our live question and answer period. Thank you, everyone.